Coming up on Omnivore, catching up with a pioneer in nutraceutical research, and warming up for the race to meet the FDA's 2026 food traceability deadline. It's all ahead on episode 24 of Omnivore, from the editors of Food Technology Magazine and the Institute of Food Technologists. This episode of Omnivore is brought to you by IFT's new product development bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Omnivore from IFT and Food Technology, where we explore the intersection of business, science, and technology in the global food system. I'm Bill McDowell. Each year, IFT presents its highest honor, the Lifetime Achievement Award in honor of Nicholas Appere, to an individual who has demonstrated an entire career of contributions to the science of food. This year's honor was awarded to Faridun Shahidi, research professor and distinguished scholar in the Department of Biochemistry at Memorial University of Newfoundland, Canada, for his vast work in nutraceuticals and functional foods. Food Technology's Deputy Managing Editor, Kelly Hensel, caught up with Dr. Shahidi to discuss the need for more fundamental research, as well as the importance of cross-disciplinary work to solve the issue of food waste. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me, Dr. Shahidi. You mentioned a lot in the interview that you gave for the article about your work being having to do with waste and utilization. And obviously, that's a very practical application of of the work, especially when it's becoming quite well known among consumers about upcycling ingredients to be used in new food products on this growing interest among consumers about upcycling to drive the advancements of the science behind bioactive ingredients and, and their utilization in new products. Why we are interested in this and why it is very important to consumers and uh, also in the circular economy and upcycling of the products, it is because the, for example, plants. Look at the seeds. Mm-hmm. The seeds are always covered with a, sh- with a skin around them. And this skin is something that protects them from environmental conditions. A lot of time what we do in over-refining the food we get rid of these things, and what we do, we may just give them to our animals. But these are f- rich with bioactive compounds. When we take the fruits and we use them for juicing or wine production, we have a lot of pomace that is left behind and seeds. And these are, again, full of bioactive compounds. So instead of throwing them away, we can take advantage of them, put money back into the pocket of the processors. Mm. And these are often having a very high value in terms of their uh, commercial application. Yeah. If we have, let's say, proteins coming from fish or other sources, if we hydrolyze them in a soluble form, they have bioactive peptides, that these bioactive peptides are very good in terms of, for example, lowering the blood pressure. They have a lot of different activities that we can take advantage of them in health promotion and disease risk reduction. And I guess it is something that 
uh, we should all take advantage of instead of dumping them in the ocean or landfills. Yeah, it's a great point. Do you feel like it's with with the kind of knowledge that consumers are are gaining around this and and pushing food manufacturing to utilize upcycled ingredients? Do you feel like there's been an increase in interest in the research behind it or demand for more research? Well, when we say something is bioactive and is good for you, we have to provide evidence. Yeah, It's not just I tell you it's good for you. <laughs> I have to provide you evidence for physiological benefits of this material. Mm-hmm. And no matter how much we do, there is more research, fundamental research that needs to be done to bring this to fruition in terms of the uh, effects in different uh, disease risk reduction mm-hmm. venues yeah. and, and work. So it is very important. And we also waste a lot of food, and I've been advocating for uh, removing this uh, best before date. Yeah, a lot of time. Just in Canada, it's no, not just the rest of the world. We waste thirty to forty billion dollar of food a year okay. because most people they look at best before date, and if it has passed that, they throw away the yeah. material. While it is very important to have developments in terms of bioactive packaging so that you can have a, you see a color change for example mm-hmm. then something goes bad and is no more useful so there is a lot of room for further advancement of science and its application to benefit from the food without wasting them and uh, not only as byproducts or food themselves yeah Okay, so I wanted to get kind of touch on the fact that all the work that you've done for uh, nutraceuticals and functional foods and forming the division for IFT, the Society for Nutraceuticals and Functional Foods that you founded. You've worked really hard to set up these institutions, these ways to bring people together around the nutraceuticals and functional foods topic. And, and I was wondering, obviously, it's been 23 years, I think, since you founded the, the IFT division. Do you feel like research and the data around nutraceuticals and functional foods has obviously improved since then? Um, what, But what still needs to happen to further advance the science? Like, does there need to be more government funding? What, what needs to happen to push the science further? One thing that is most important is that we have to work together in a yeah. cohesive manner as scientists. Uh, I remember when we were to establish uh, the division within the IFT, there were the, there was at least one division that was thinking they can do it all. We have here a chain. Each of us form a very important loop in that chain. Yeah. So there are chemists, nutritionists, engineers, dietitians, those who are basically in... Uh, legislative and legal Mm -hmm. uh, experts that can help us bring all these together so that we can move from one side to the other side and help advancing the science and its application. This is still something that, although it has happened to a large extent, needs to be further fostered Mm -hmm. and uh, taken advantage of because we can't do it all ourselves or with what we know. 
obviously funding, strategic funding is very important. And this is something that both the industry and the governments have to chip in and uh, bring this to uh, basically happening. I know you really enjoy working with your students and that they obviously you work with them like as partners and 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 working together is there anything exciting that's that your students are curious about right now <laughs> that, that you're you're fascinated by well the students always you know bring mm. in their own thoughts yeah and uh, and it is very important that we treat them as equal yeah if we are uh, acting as boss and try to basically put them at a different level, it doesn't work. Yeah. We've got to basically give them all the chance and elbow room so that they can bring about what is in their minds and not to be scared of saying something. If you are wrong as a student, it's fine. Yeah. We are here to guide you, not to basically, and, and, and that is all our role to guide you in the right direction so that you don't go astray. Yeah. Uh, and and no question or no effort is uh, basically wrong. Right. Uh, sometimes the students are afraid that, oh, if I do this, it may be wrong. Well, maybe it is a good thing to go and do the wrong thing because you learn from it what was wrong and why uh, you did it that way and why you should not have done it that way and chose or uh, selected another way of uh, proceeding with it. That's so interesting because I do feel like a lot of people and, and students and, and people in general are afraid to fail, but fail failure can be so informative. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there is nothing wrong with, right. uh, with failing in something yeah. as long as you learn from it. Faridun Shahidi is a university research professor and distinguished scholar in the Department of Biochemistry at Memorial University of Newfoundland and recipient of the 2023 Lifetime Achievement Award in honor of Nicholas Appere. You can find an extended interview with Dr. Shahidi in the November issue of Food Technology. We'll be back with more Omnivore in a moment, but first, this word from our sponsor. Introducing IFT's Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Whether you're new to product development or need a refresh on the basics, IFT's Product Development Bootcamp offers a wealth of valuable insights, practical strategies, and real-world examples to take your product development to the next level. Learn more at ift.org slash bootcamp. Welcome back to Omnivore. I'm Bill McDowell. 2026 might seem a long way off, but the countdown clock is ticking with respect to FDA's final rule on requirements for additional traceability records for certain foods. Also known as the Food Traceability Final Rule, or FISMA 204, the rule mandates full implementation by January 20th, 2026 of traceability record-keeping requirements aimed at fostering faster identification and rapid removal 
of potentially contaminated food from the market with the aim of reducing foodborne illnesses. Food Technologies' Julie Larson Brisher caught up with FDA's Adam Freelander and IFT's Blake Harris to kick off this new multi-part series aimed at helping stakeholders get ready to meet the deadline. Well, hi, Adam and Blake. It's a pleasure to have you both on the podcast today. Thank you for having us, Julie. Yeah, thanks. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, Adam, let's start with you. Could you give us the 30,000-foot view overview of the food traceability rule and how it fits into FSMA and the agency's Smarter Food Safety Blueprint? Yeah, thanks for the question, Julie. To start, I believe the food traceability rule is a game-changer for supply chain collaboration. It's a game-changer for FDA's traceback investigation processes, and it's a game-changer for the food safety and technology community. Congress recognized over a decade ago the need for better food traceability with the passage of the Food Safety Modernization Act, or FSMA. The one-up, one-back approach to traceability that began in the early 2000s under the Bioterrorism Act yielded insufficient and inefficient results for outbreak investigations because data elements were not well-defined, and it was difficult for the industry and the FDA to link products and shipments together, especially since many records were and remained predominantly paper-based. This food traceability rule allows for faster identification and rapid removal of potentially contaminated food from the market, resulting in fewer foodborne illnesses and or deaths. It also helps create a harmonized language for food traceability that lays the foundation for end-to-end supply chain visibility, and it delivers an organizational method so that no matter what company or sector in the food industry you belong to, companies can play by the same set of rules. Software solutions can also begin the process of interoperating with each other more easily. And through industry innovation, low or no-cost technologies will become more readily available to help reduce the barrier of entry for businesses of all sizes to participate in a more digitized food supply chain. This last point about digital traceability is a key outcome of FDA's non-regulatory policy initiative called the New Era of Smarter Food Safety. But it's important to note that FSMA Section 204 explicitly states that FDA cannot prescribe specific technologies for the maintenance of records, meaning we can provide the what and where in terms of what data to collect and the points in the supply chain to collect them, but the rule does not provide the how to do it. There are so many great industry resources that can help the industry with the how. And although FDA will remain agnostic into how a company chooses to develop their own traceability systems and processes, we absolutely support industry to voluntarily innovate in this space, to go beyond the rules requirements, to help create a more robust digital and traceable food supply chain that can improve business efficiencies and ultimately save lives. Adam, does FISMA 204 apply to non-U.S. entities? Yeah, it's a great question, Julie. The short answer is yes. Unless a specific exemption applies, the record-keeping requirements of the food traceability rule do apply 
to imported foods. And this further underscores the importance of trading partners working together to ensure all the necessary data elements are captured according to the rules requirements. Well, Adam, let's move on to some of the nuts and bolts of the rule. Would you give us some details about the key concepts, such as the FTL, the CTEs, and the KDEs? It's a lot of acronyms, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's a great question, and I think it's important for people to really understand the nuts and bolts of the rule. So at a high level, the rule requires persons covered by the rule who manufacture, process, pack or hold foods on the food traceability list, or the FTL, to maintain records containing key data elements, KDEs we call them, associated with specific critical tracking events, or CTEs, and provide this information to FDA within 24 hours of request in an electronic sortable spreadsheet. To determine which food should be included on the FTL, FDA developed a risk ranking model based on factors Congress identified within FSMA. The complete list is available on FDA's food traceability rule landing page, and the FTL includes several different commodities, including, but not limited to, soft cheeses, shell eggs, nut butters, fresh leafy greens, fresh cut produce, fresh and frozen seafood, and ready-to-eat deli salads. The critical tracking events in the final rule are harvesting, cooling, and that's cooling before initial packing, initial packing of a raw agricultural commodity, the first land-based receiving of a food obtained from a fishing vessel, shipping, receiving, and transformation of the food. So under the rule, each of these CTEs have a list of KDEs they are responsible for collecting, maintaining, and in certain instances, sharing with their supply chain partners. Many of these KDEs are already captured by the food industry, such as the product description, who you ship to, who you received the food from, the date you received or shipped the food, and the actual record where this information can be found. But central to this rule and what may be new for the industry is the assignment, recording, and sharing of traceability lot codes, or TLCs, for these FTL foods as they move throughout the supply chain. And this TLC creates the necessary supply chain linkages between products and shipments. However, only those initially packing a raw agricultural commodity performing that first land-based receiving of a food from a fishing vessel or transforming a food can assign a traceability lot code. And these descriptors, which are often alphanumeric, unique product identifiers, helps link products and shipments together. And the method for assigning a TLC must be outlined within the firm's traceability plan. In, in other words, the TLC makes it possible for the FDA to make linkages within a firm and across a supply chain, even if a food was transformed into a new product and given a new TLC by the entity who performed the transformation event. Another new data element for the industry is the traceability lot code source or the traceability lot code source reference. 
the TLC source slash source reference enables FDA to know which entity assigned that traceability lock code. And there is flexibility into how this TLC source slash source reference is relayed across trading partners' records. For example, the entity who assigned the traceability lock code can use the actual name of a business and the address of that business, a global location number or GLN, an FDA facility registration number, or they can use a secured permission-based digital link. But again, there is flexibility here for the industry to determine the best way they want to relay the TLC source slash source reference. So if the FDA knows the TLC and the TLC source, we can go straight to that entity during an outbreak investigation. And this helps us to identify the potentially contaminated food more quickly. It also helps to inform further prevention efforts outlined under FSMA. And ultimately, it will help to mitigate additional illnesses. And lastly, Julie, I just want to mention that there are a number of exemptions that are outlined in the rule, and FDA has created an exemptions tool, which is available on FDA's website to help companies better understand these full and partial exemptions. Thank you, Adam. And Blake, Blake, I'm going to turn to you for my next question. Last spring, IFT released the FDA-commissioned Tech-Enabled Traceability Insights Report, which evaluates food traceability trends based on submissions that participants in FDA's 2021 low or no cost tech enabled traceability challenge, you know, had submitted. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the insights that have come out of that report? Yeah, absolutely. So the FDA's low, no cost tech enabled traceability challenge had the primary goal of encouraging stakeholders to develop, you know, traceability hardware, software, or data analytics platforms that were no or low cost to the end user, they ended up receiving 90 submissions. And once the winners were announced, um, the FDA uh, gave the submission materials uh, to IFT, and we used those along with the publicly available information about those um, submitted traceability solutions to, as, as a representative sample for the traceability technology landscape as a whole. And we really focused on four themes throughout that report. So the first was interoperability, uh, which is the ability of software systems to exchange and interpret data without the need for human intervention. And this is important because it allows different software systems to exchange that data seamlessly and move away from this kind of one system dominating a supply chain approach uh, that we've seen historically. So what I mean by that is, you know, a customer will use a, a traceability solution, but they'll have to demand that their suppliers also use the same solution in order to make sure that they're getting all the data, uh, which is, is a problem if you're in the middle of the supply chain and you've got 10 different customers asking you to use 10 different software platforms, right? It increases the cost and complexity of collecting and delivering that data to your customers. So interoperability is really key. So we looked at the use of data standards. Uh, Adam mentioned, you know, GS1 and particularly their EPCIS standard 
to really as as sort of one of those themes and how well these solutions were integrating those types of things. The other, the next theme was solution support and infrastructure needs. Obviously, as the supply chains digitize, there are some sort of underlying requirements that are going to need to be met, such as access to internet. You know, I mean, we think everybody's got access to 5G, but the reality is where a lot of our food is produced, um, you know, it's not necessarily high speed internet or consistent connectivity but also training and education just around traceability in general. You know, there's been a lot, a huge push since FISMA uh, 204 was released last November, uh, you know, to train and, and educate uh, different parts of the industry. The next theme would be usability. So technology has to really serve a wide range of environments and also users, right? So, you know, depending on what the commodity is, where you are in the supply chain, really depends on who's gonna be using that product and in what conditions. And then the last cost is the cost considerations beyond the sticker price. You know, as industry looks to implement new technology, this is not necessarily something that any one person does every day. And so we laid out some considerations to think through when you're investing in in technology, in a new technology beyond just what's my licensing fee going to be on a monthly or yearly basis that I think will be helpful, at least directionally, as um, the industry looks to, to digitize. And so those are, the, those are the four key themes. There's obviously other aspects to the, the challenge participants and uh, traceability that are embedded there. And I think we will speak more to that in the second episode of this podcast series. So Adam, in the next podcast segment in this series, we're going to do a deeper dive into the availability, the challenges and the use of traceability technology to help with compliance. But today I'd like to get your take on next steps that companies who are on the FTL can take to start or continue down the road to implementation? Well, first, Julie, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next episode. There is so much information to discuss, and it's important to continue these kinds of conversations so people feel more prepared and confident with their data systems and the rule itself. So the compliance date for this rule is January 20th, 2026. But FDA recently made the announcement that routine inspections will not begin until 2027 to give covered entities additional time to work together toward compliance. But we may do inspections on a four-cause basis, such as during an outbreak investigation once this January 2026 compliance date is reached. It's important for cross-functional teams to read the rule review the resources on FDA's website, and ask questions to FDA subject matter experts using our technical assistance network. But ultimately, it's important for internal teams and trading partners to start working together on capturing these data elements now, because the compliance date is nearly two years away and it will approach us faster than we think. Lastly, I want to mention that as has been done with other FISMA rules, the FDA plans to take an educate before and while we regulate posture as we begin implementing the food traceability rule requirements. How about you, Blake? 
Yeah, just to reiterate a couple of points there, you know, this rule really touches a number of different departments. Um, it's, you know, food safety, quality assurance, shipping, receiving, procurement, regulatory compliance, potentially um, IT as well. So it's important to get a plan internally, share that plan with your your suppliers, with your customers, make sure that everybody is aware and interpreting the rule in the same way, uh, because this is all about sharing sharing data between trading partners. Get started now. There's a ton of resources out there that you know, webinars, IFTs, Global Food Traceability Center has created a number of different resources as well. You can find it at ift.org slash GFTC. So educate yourself, get a plan and start working internally and with your trading partners and maybe even any working groups that are going on in your particular covered products. Adam Freelander is policy analyst for the Coordinated Outbreak Response and Evaluation Network with the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Blake Harris is technical director of IFT's Global Food Traceability Center. Visit ift.org gftc to download a copy of IFT's tech-enabled traceability insights report and access the educational materials and tools mentioned in today's episode. And be sure to check out FDA's website at fda.gov to stay abreast of the latest information on FISMA 204. This episode of Omnivore has been sponsored by IFT's new Product Development Bootcamp, a comprehensive 10-module online course designed to equip food and beverage professionals with the knowledge and skills necessary to elevate and accelerate product development. Learn more at ift.org bootcamp. And that wraps up this episode of Omnivore. Thanks again to all our guests and my colleagues at Food Technology. Omnivore is produced and distributed by the Institute of Food Technologists. If you enjoyed today's show and want to learn more about Food Technology Magazine or how to join the conversation by becoming an IFT member, visit ift.org membership. For more in-depth discussion about innovation in the science of food, check out IFT's other podcast, SciDish, on the news and publications page of ift.org. If you have comments or suggestions for future shows, just send us an email. The address is editors at ift.org. For the entire team at Food Technology and IFT, I'm Bill McDowell. Thanks for listening, and join us again for our next episode. This is Omnivore.